everyone, welcome to this week's edition of Growth Everywhere, where we interview entrepreneurs and bring you business and personal growth tips. Today we have Peter Keller from Fridge Sport. Peter, how are we doing today? Fantastic. And yourself, Eric? I'm doing great. Thanks for joining us. And yeah, Peter, why don't you give us a little bit on your background and then I know we'll go from there. Awesome. Sounds great. So I founded FringeSport.com, which is an e-commerce company that designs, manufactures, and of course sells strength and conditioning equipment that's focused on the CrossFit market. You heard of CrossFit before, Eric? Yeah, absolutely. Friends, awesome. friends do it a ton. So There you go. And, yeah. and uh, I do it a little bit myself. So <laughs> but I was working for another e-commerce company here in Austin, Texas before I founded Fringe. And I just kind of got a little bit disenchanted with the product line that we were in, and I wanted to own you know, the fruits of my own labor. So I took a look around at a number of things that I was passionate about, and one of those things was you know, I was a big-time CrossFitter, and then I love uh, strength and conditioning, fitness and sport and stuff like that. And I'm an e-commerce guy, but also a product guy, like a physical product guy. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I think I can do this CrossFit thing, and I think I can make some pretty awesome products and bring them to our customers, and then I think I can do a pretty good job marketing them. So at the time, I had a brother who was still in college. He's 10 years younger than I am. And I said, hey, do you want to jump in on this with me? And you know, we'll you know, make a go of it. If it doesn't work out, you know, you're basically the same place where you are now, except you've got a you know, failed business under your belt. I mean, can't, can't hurt, right? Yep. And then uh, for me, I'll, you know, I'll go on and do something else. And he said, you know, let's do it. And so three years ago, founded it out of my garage and... So that was 2010. Didn't do a whole lot. You know, sold a few things in 2010, but 2011 was our first full year. And as we were running it as a side project, uh, I was working for my employer. He was going to school, and then when he got out of school, I actually got him a job with one of my buddies who did internet marketing. Mm-hmm. But we did 100k in revenue in in 2011, and that mm-hmm. was just totally as a side project. Then in 2012, we quit our jobs and got a proper warehouse, and we did uh, about a million dollars in revenue in 2012. 2013, we did about 3.4 million in revenue, and this year we're aiming at six. Next year, 10, and then after that, I don't know, 15, 20, yeah. somewhere in there. So where we are right now, we've got a warehouse in Austin, Texas. Plus, we also have a fabrication shop here in Austin because we make some product, or actually a lot of product, with outsourced manufacturers. But some of it we make in house, and we've got about 10 full time employees and another 10 part timers and, and contractors in the mix. Wow, awesome! So good, good growth numbers. Very impressive. So thank you. You know, having to, I mean, you know, when you when you worked at the e-commerce store before, did you have to like manage a warehouse, manage you know all these different you know parts before? I mean, you know, walk us through like how it was to kind of learn all of this. So, you know, I mentioned the the previous employer. I'll, I'll give them a shout out by name here. They're Living Direct, and that's Living Direct. Ah. So. One of the the great things about Living Direct, I always joke that I was a terrible employee for them because I got bored really easily and bounced around the company a fair bit before I kind of found my niche over there. One of the really great things about them, though, is that they let me more or less work on whatever interested me as long as it was good and making money for the company. And so when you ask about, hey, do I know about warehousing? Do I know about this? Do I know about that? The answer is, yeah. Uh, actually, when I was working for Living Direct, I got exposure to every different aspect of the company. Mm-hmm. And part of that was I was there 10 years, which I can't even believe I've been anywhere for 10 years. But uh, you know, th- that's me. And I started in the warehouse. And when I left, I was the VP and, and was having some talks with the CEO about a possible path 
to taking over the CEO slot, you know, not right away, but in, in a couple of years. So I, I had really great growth there, and it was really a fertile ground for me to learn a little bit of everything from logistics to product sourcing to e-commerce and internet marketing and even finance and, and stuff like that. So, so yeah, I, I'd had a lot of experience in a lot of different areas from that. And then I actually, uh, my undergrad's a film degree, but I did go back and get an MBA while I was working at my previous employer. So I, ha- I had a little bit of, you know, kind of business background. Yes. Yeah. Damn, hardcore, man. It's, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. So film background, MBA, and then almost, <laughs> almost on the path, to, well, on the path to becoming a CEO. So awesome. Um, in terms of, you know, biggest lesson while you're, you're you know, while you're growing uh, fringe sport, like what, what have you, what's the biggest lesson you, you've learned so far? So... I would say the biggest lesson that I've learned so far or one that I've kind of gotten over is just start your damn business. If you're thinking about starting a business, you got an idea, just start it. Because prior to Fringe Sport, I had actually had two or three like failed businesses, but they weren't even properly failed. They were just, you know, I had a great idea and I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. And even a few times I had partners and we put a little bit of money in. And then once it got time for the rubber to hit the road and to really start doing something, mm-hmm. then, you know, there are a million excuses of why not to do it. Like either, you know, oh, the prototype's not ready or the website's, you know, it's not quite there yet or, you know, hey, I've, I've got to, you know, work hard at my day job, which is paying my bills or whatever. Just all of these different excuses. And I, I had always wanted to own my own business. Mm-hmm. And then... I think I, I really had the excuses were fear of failure. Mm-hmm. So rather than start, I would just not properly get things off the road or off the ground rather. Because mm-hmm. if, if I didn't put full effort into something and it failed, then I didn't really fail. It's just like, oh, yeah, I didn't really put full effort into that thing anyways. So that's like the biggest lesson that I've totally gotten over now is just start. So I, I now have not a whole lot of patience for people who tell me that they have a great idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if somebody says, hey, I got a great idea, I'm like, okay, great. What are you doing right now to make that idea a reality? Mm-hmm. And don't don't say like, oh, you're thinking about it, getting it ready, whatever. I mean like, who are you calling? Who are you selling it to? What are you doing? Mm-hmm. So that's my number one lesson, really. Just start it and succeed or fail on right. your own merits. I mean, you can't control the result, right? But you can control the activity. So. Exactly. Cool. Uh, one thing is one thing that's interesting is uh, you're you know you're you're an entrepreneurs organization. I am as well. So you know, why don't you talk a little bit about entrepreneurs <laughs> organization and kind of how it's helped you? Yeah. Uh, so actually, I had noticed that on your bio previously, and I was listening to another earlier podcast that you did with Scott. I, I don't recall his last name, but he had started kind of a complimentary organization to EO. So <clears throat> let me tell you a little bit about EO. And, and are you okay? I'll just start. Yeah. So. I had a buddy, still do, and he started his business a long time before I started my business. Mm-hmm. And when I started Fringe, I was calling him all the time and, you know, bothering him, but but he and I are good friends and asking him all of these questions about all these different aspects of things that come up just in kind of your day-to-day. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, who's your accountant? You know, how do I look for a good accountant? Uh, how do I deal with, you know, like this issue that came up in the business or that issue that came up with my partner or something like that. And he would always cheerfully help me, but he was in EO and he said, you know what, Pete, this is what EO is for, Mm -hmm. for you to have a a forum group. So basically a small group of seven to nine other entrepreneurs where you can bounce ideas off of them. And the idea behind that is that even if 
you're in a, in a small group with somebody who has, as in my case, a dental practice, and then another guy who has a limousine company, and then another guy who's an internet marketer, and then another guy who has like an IT consulting company. Even if those companies are all very disparate, these people have business experience, and a lot of things in business are the same. I mean, they've dealt with investors, they've dealt with banks, they've dealt with employees, and in general, they have a lot of experience that you can tap into, and then you can actually share and give back to the group as well. So what EO is, is it's kind of like a mastermind setting where it gets you together. And actually, there are, a few other, there are quite a few other benefits, but for me, Forum, which is the small group in EO, has been the biggest benefit because I know once a month, come hell or high water, mm-hmm. I'm going to sit down in a room with a number of other high-achieving individuals, and we're going to not only talk about, you know, maybe problems in my business, but also an accountability group. Mm-hmm. You know, if I said at the last meeting, hey, I'm going to do X, at that next meeting, if I haven't done X, they're going to call me on my bullshit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm going to do that vice versa to them. So it's, that's what's been really helpful for me from EO. Also, I know that there are a lot of larger benefits because you have different EO chapters in different cities and indeed all over the world, mm-hmm. and you can tap into that network as well. But for me, the forum group of just being with another you know, eight entrepreneurs on a monthly basis has been hugely beneficial to me and my business. And uh, one thing I do want to mention in terms of personal growth, it's been very helpful from a personal side, even outside of the business. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that a lot of entrepreneurs don't talk about is... Uh, you know, not only your personal growth, but also like your family. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was going to business school, we would see influential, you know, CEOs and whatnot come and speak to us who were kind of at, you know, the tail end of their careers, who had done really great things in their careers. And one of the common complaints that they would mention is they would say, oh, I wish I'd spent more time with my family. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I achieved all this, but I don't know my kids that well or, or this or that. And that's actually one of the things that's great for me about EO because I do have a wife and children Mm -hmm. and I can talk about how do I make an entrepreneurial lifestyle fit with my family because my family is number one. So, uh, you know, those are a few things that I tap EO for and I love EO for that. Got it. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, whenever someone from EO comes on the show, I always like to bring up EO (laughs) because I think it's any entrepreneur in the audience definitely needs to look at it. Um, Some people say, you know, oh, uh, I don't need that. You know, it's it's not for me. Maybe some people do. I don't need a therapy group or whatever, right? So it's, <laughs> it's much more than that. And I couldn't agree with you more. The, the forum is, is a massive help. Um, I mean, it, it's not just business stuff. It's personal stuff too, right? And you guys can go like super like deep into it as well. So, um, you know, thanks for sharing your experiences there. Um, in terms of, you know, let's talk about going back to fridge sport a little bit. So uh, when did you decide that it was time to kind of go all in? When was it at the right time? So as I mentioned before, I founded Fringe in 2010. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were running it out of my garage for 2010 and then all of 2011. But uh, So actually, sorry, let me take that back. At the end of 2011, we got a warehouse. Mm-hmm. So the real aha moment for me with Fringe Sport was actually Black Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Cyber Monday of 2011. Mm-hmm. So for all of 2011, we did about 100 k in revenue. But in those four days... We did, and I don't even remember the exact number, but it was like 25 or 30K in revenue in those four days. And I just remember that that was a total, like, oh shit, this is a real business. Because prior to that, 
you know, orders were kind of trickling in and, you know, and, and it was, you know, on an upward scale over the year, you know, we had a lot more orders in say October than we, we had in January, Mm -hmm. but that four day period when it was like the floodgates open and orders just started just streaming into our website plus locally as well, because we did actually get a warehouse and and have a, a big black Friday sale on that day. But when we saw all that revenue come in, we immediately, my business partner and I said, holy crap, so we need to either quit our jobs and focus on this and, and try to you know, nurture this business as much as we can because it could be something really big mm-hmm. or we need to basically get out of the business or, or sell it to somebody else who can because there's potential here and it's not living up to its potential with us just doing this on the side. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was the real aha moment that actually very directly led to us both quitting our jobs, you know, doubling down, so to speak, burning the ships, whatever metaphor you want to use, mm-hmm. and going all in with Fringe. Okay, got it. And so, obviously, you know, when you're starting off, uh, starting up a business, I know we talked about the biggest lesson, right? But what was like a, oh shit type of moment? And what did you, what did you learn from that moment? Oh boy, so an, an oh shit type of moment, and this is one that actually we're still struggling with today, is that as a business that fundamentally is moving like physical boxes from point A to point B, I mean, it's not software, it's not scalable like that. So in order to, to you know, make more money, we got to move more boxes. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I didn't really think about very much, because even though I was involved, I mean, I've got, you know, an MBA and, and I was involved in the finance side with my previous employer, mm-hmm. I didn't fully look at what explosive growth meant to an e-commerce company mm-hmm. in terms of the financing side. Mm-hmm. Because what we're doing at Fringe, especially as more time goes on, is you know we, and in most cases I, am literally designing the products that we sell. Mm-hmm. And then I'm communicating with either Chinese factories, Malaysian factories, Pakistani factories, or our own fab uh, employees here in Austin mm-hmm. on how to make the products. And so we actually, you know, with e-commerce, we, I mean, Kickstarter notwithstanding, uh, we have to have the product on hand in order to sell it. Mm-hmm. Because even if somebody will go to some of these, you know, alternative e-commerce systems and they'll pay way in advance of getting the product for us, for our customers, they want to pay and then get the product, boom, yeah. right away. So we need to have that product literally on our shelves. And dealing with, especially the overseas manufacturers, it's very difficult to get financing on that. So what that means is as we just continue to grow, 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 Mm -hmm. we need to invest more and more money on the inventory side and just, you know, even in like deposits and things like that with factories. So there have been a few uh, definite oh shit moments over the past, let's say, you know, 12 months where it's like, holy crap, you know, we've got all this inventory on the shelves, Mm -hmm. our sales forecast, you know, we're not hitting our sales forecast for, you know, this month or for these two months or something like that. Mm -hmm. We need to go into sales mode right away and we need to turn some of this inventory into cash. And, you know, we've gotten through all of those moments, Mm -hmm. but that was definitely, the first one I would say was was definitely a huge eye-opener. And then after that, we basically built a ton of systems so that, A, we've got more visibility when these oh shit moments are are coming up Mm -hmm. and then B, we've got these outlets where we can either take on some additional financing if that's needed, we have outlets where we can make some, you know, kind of flash sales and again, turn some inventory into cash very quickly Mm -hmm. so that we can meet our bills and do that sort of thing. So that was one of the biggest things that we're still managing through and and as long as we have this very high rate of growth, we're going to continue to have to manage through Mm -hmm. is that 
just understand the implications of your business plan, or excuse me, business model and, and business plan. And, you know, the other thing I would say is <laughs> if you, and this is something that I talk with some of my buddies about, we're not in a terribly high margin business. Um, and if we were in a more high margin business, then it would be much more, it would be much easier to finance that growth with profitability just from cash flows. But that's something that, you know, take a good look at your margins and, and take a good look at your cash conversion cycle just so you can understand how money is moving through your company and where you need the money. So that's been a, a huge one that we're, you know, we've, it's no longer an acute problem, but mm -hmm. it's definitely one that, that crops up from time to time. Got it. No, that sounds like a problem that can massively snowball. So glad you, glad you fixed it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it sounds like, you know, I guess going back into the, the cash flow part of it, I mean, it sounds like you have some kind of uh, preventers. We'll just call them, you know, uh, you know contingency plans, right? In case anything blows up. So can you share some of those with the audience? Just because cash flow is such a big thing and I don't, I don't think we talk about it enough, uh, you know, on these shows. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the number one thing is, is you want to have visibility into what's going on with your cash. And as a company that is, so we're bootstrapped, we are 100% owned by myself and my partner. And we're what I like to call thinly financed, which is to say we, we do have a few loans that he and I took out to fund the business, but it's nothing massive. And the business, uh, by the way, is profitable. We, we broke even on that first year of 100K in revenue. Wow. And then uh, on a million, we made some money. And on 3.4 million, we made some money. Unfortunately, all the money we made is just like, boom, plowed back into inventory. Yeah. But you know, we're, we're a profitable, bootstrapped business that's subsisting on cash flow. So number one, you need to have visibility into what's going on. And I know that's a silly thing to say, but when you're growing as fast as we are and when you don't have you know, just tons of cash floating around to invest in systems, this was something that we invested in a little bit more slowly than we should have. Mm -hmm. So now what we have, and honestly, we just implemented a system called Bright Pearl that's kind of an ERP you know, enterprise resource planning system that, that handles all of our back end. We don't fully have the financial side of that up and running right now. So I'm still a little bit on Google Docs, you know, spreadsheets. But the point is that we're on something. So we can see these problems coming from further away. Because if you can see that a month out you're going to be tight on cash, you've got a whole month to do something about it. Whereas before, you know, the, the very big oh shit moment, we were basically like a week out and it was like, Holy crap! We need to make a big payment, and we just don't have the cash. A week of cash in the bank? Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, basically. Okay. All right. <laughs> that I mean, that's a real like, you know, pull out your hair. Yeah. This you know, shit just got real moment. Yeah. So now we can see it coming, you know, much much further out. So that's number one. Number two is building. So the very best way, if you have a business model that work or a business that works, the very best way to get out of those cash crunches. Is to sell your way out. Now, if you if you have a business model that's just burning cash, you, you need to get financing, or you need to have find, find cash somewhere to get out of that cash crunch. But we have a profitable business, and so and a business that works. So if we see those things coming, we need we now have a few outlets that we have to uh, uh, move a little extra cash into the business. And for us, one of those outlets has been garage sales. So we are very cognizant of our the value of our brand and we don't want to cheapen our brand and we actually run uh, only one sale a year we only run a black friday through cyber monday sale and that's actually <laughs> kind of in honor 
of that very first weekend that showed us that the business was you know uh, viable and, and, and was exciting. But other than that, we do run some garage sales. So with CrossFit, a lot of times there are competitions, and we'll sponsor a competition by providing you know barbells and that sort of thing to the competition free of charge, you know, loaning them barbells essentially. Mm-hmm. So a few times a year we have a garage sale and we sell off these used barbells and weight plates and things like that. So we've learned that we can do that whenever we see a cash crunch happening. We can have a garage sale because that creates a lot of excitement among our customers. Mm-hmm. And it not only moves product that is in the garage sale, but it also moves new product as well because customers tell, you know, hey, you know, you can go buy barbells for really cheap from Fringe Sport right now. And then, you know, another customer will come and say, well, you know, they sold out of all the used barbells, but I'm going to buy a new barbell anyways, you know, while I'm here. So, uh, you know, building that out. The other thing is building out eBay channels Mm. to, you know, quietly move some product that, you know, if we need to without harming our brand. Another thing is building out dealers or wholesalers that we can go to and say, hey, we have a bunch of barbells. You usually buy 30 barbells a month at, you know, X dollars per barbell, we're willing to give you, you know, five or 10% off, but we need you to buy these barbells right now. So those are channels to create extra cash. The other channels in terms of, you know, financing and funding is there is a company called Cabbage these Mm. days. With a K, right? Cabbage with a K. There you go. And we actually haven't tapped Cabbage for any funds yet, but I do know that they have what for us are relatively small amounts of, of funds. But if we needed just a very short bridge loan, we could tap them for I think twenty to forty thousand dollars, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do have a fairly high interest rate, but it's similar to the interest rate that you might pay on a credit card. So, you know, it's not horrible. Mm-hmm. And then you pay that back over six months. So also, you know, be mindful that you have to pay that back fairly quickly, and it is at a fairly high interest rate. Mm-hmm. The other thing is there's another company called On Deck that do loans that are similar to that. In that they have a fairly high interest rate, but the and the loans are are fairly short term. But again, they can get you out of a cash crunch. So those are a few ways that that we've developed so far to get out of the cash crunch. Longer term ways, you know, we're looking at financing from our suppliers, even though they're overseas, and then just going toe to toe with our U.S. suppliers to get longer terms. Because many suppliers will give you net thirty, even if you just ask a little bit. But you know, pushing some of them to go net sixty or net ninety. Um, the thing is, when you negotiate with suppliers about getting terms, you have to put it in a. You have to frame it such that you know what's in it for them, mm-hmm. because a supplier doesn't want to give you. I mean, just like all else equal, they don't want to give you credit because if they give you credit, then you may never pay them back. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a risk one way or another. So if you can show them that it's going to be valuable to them to take that risk and that there may be some payback for it, then they're much more willing to go through that and take that risk. And the biggest things that we've you know, found is we say, look, we normally order 30 pieces of X from you a month. But if you give us credit, I would feel comfortable to order 60 pieces of X from you a month. And then we're going to really try to push this piece because we're going to have a ton on our shelves. So, you know, say, hey, we're going to double our volume or we're going to, you know, our volume is going to go up by 20% or, or whatever. Try to say, hey, you guys are going to sell more if you give us terms because then I'll feel more comfortable about ordering the product. And then if I have it on my shelves, I'm going to push it. And, you know, just for example, with one of our suppliers that recently gave us some net 60-day terms, I mean, it's true. If, 
if my buyer says, hey, I want to order you know, this many barbells from this supplier and the terms are net 60, I'm like, well, how long is it going to take to sell those barbells? And the buyer says, well, I think it, it's going to be 45 days. Best case, it's going to be 30 days. Worst case, it's going to be 60 days. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, cool. So in your worst case scenario, we still get paid by our customers before we have to pay our suppliers. So let's do it. I don't need to think about it anymore. So that was a great way. Got it. So it, it sounds like always, you know, always got to be negotiating, especially when you have traction. So um, cool. And, you know, one thing is, one thing to, to talk about is, um, I always like to ask the question, I mean, you know, how did you acquire your first 100 customers? <laughs> so the first 100 customers were, were interesting. So number one, my I have a background with pay-per-click campaign management, or at least I did that for a while at my previous employer. And then my brother, when he graduated from school, he got a job at, uh, well, I got him a job at one of my friend's companies that does AdWords management essentially. Mm-hmm. So immediately out the gate, we started using ad, AdWords. The thing that I mention, I, I always mention people because we're still on AdWords today, mm-hmm. but just be extremely careful because what I compare AdWords to is like going to a Vegas casino and playing roulette. In, in that, you know, roulette can be cool, it can be a lot of fun, you know, you can make money gambling, whatever. But if you don't know what you're doing, you can piss away a lot of money really fast. Mm-hmm. And AdWords is the same exact way. If you don't know what you're doing, you can piss away money really quickly. So I would just say be extremely careful, watch your analytics and, you know, go on somebody's blog and and read about what analytics you should be looking at for AdWords. So, uh but that that's what we did. So <laughs> so we started out with AdWords. Uh we actually immediately went rolling with eBay and and actually if I were to do it again, I would immediately roll with Amazon mm-hmm. because those are both platforms that have very large customer bases or user bases already on them mm-hmm. so you can tap into those and then also with eBay especially you can uh, <laughs> harvest the email addresses and add them to your email list if you're, I did not know that <laughs> uh, well you're not strictly speaking supposed to uh-huh. but let's just say that I know a lot of people who have oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> so because you get everybody's email uh, address and I'm yeah. not advocating spamming anyone oh, absolutely but, not. but if someone has shown interest in sporting goods <laughs> like they're, if they're interested in one kettlebell they're probably interested in a barbell too or you know anyways yeah. don't, don't spam <laughs> <laughs> but anyways the other thing would be hustling lo- just locally and to our friends and kind of tapping into friends of friends because I was extremely active. Again, we, we make strength and conditioning equipment, but we're very, very targeted on the CrossFit market. And I was already very active locally in CrossFit. So when I started you know, bringing in gear, then I just started talking to my friends about it. Hey, here's the gear that I'm bringing in. You know, do you need gear? Do you know someone who needs gear? And as CrossFit was getting more and more popular, I mean, everybody needed something. And so I was just looking, just hustling, trying to get out there, going to CrossFit events before we had enough money to sponsor them. And just, you know, because a lot of times my friends were running the events. And then I just say, hey, can we get a booth for free? We're just starting up. You know, help me out. And then I would, you know, work on it that way. And then the other thing that I would do early on is I gave away a lot of free gear to people with blogs. And I just said, hey, I don't care what you write about this thing, you know, this gymnastic, excuse me, ring or kettlebell. But just write about it and and give me a link Uh and take a few pictures. Um, One thing that one caveat that I mentioned about that as well is that 
you have to be very careful giving stuff to bloggers, especially if you're bootstrapped and you're giving away like physical products versus software or something, mm -hmm. because a lot of times we have a fairly low hit rate on, I mean, sorry, not, not anymore, but we used to have a fairly low hit rate with giving things to bloggers and then actually getting a review. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think a lot of that is that the very, you know, top tier, like awesome blogs just get so much stuff mm -hmm. that they don't really necessarily have the time to pay attention to somebody who's just doing a, a startup business, mm -hmm. especially if you don't have like a really cool hook. Uh, and then people who are on like the lower end of blogs are kind of doing it as a, a hobby and they're not super professional. So they may, you know, be like, oh yeah, I'll definitely write you a, re a review. And then, you know, they get the product and they're just busy or whatever. And then they don't want to write through or they just forget about it. Yeah. So, but that's how uh, we acquired our first hundred customers. It was a combination of the AdWords, eBay, um, hustling locally, and then, uh, you know, kind of working the blog circuit. Cool. Nice. And I guess today, I mean, what's working for you guys on the marketing side? So what's working today is actually our organic listings are much, much better than they were. So it took us a while to figure out how to, how to really break through the clutter in Google, but lately it's been working a lot better. And, and I think a lot of that has to do, you know, it's hard to say with SEO, right? Mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> but I think a lot of that has to do with our, you know, fringesport.com domain just getting more authority from just getting more inbound links mm -hmm. from different places. And I think that that has kind of, you know, made the whole ship rise up a little bit. The other thing is that you know we we have you know mined our keywords and and seen what keywords convert and how people are finding us and then we've salted that in with the on page stuff a little bit more. We've also done a little bit of off page optimization. So one of the things that I do when I give you know some a blogger let's say a pair of gymnastic rings for uh, review is I ask for two links from them in the review. One is a link to our homepage, which they can have anchor text of whatever, and then two is a link to the product itself, and I suggest a few you know, pieces of anchor text okay. that makes sense for that product. Okay. And, uh, and those have to be non-affiliate links. But I, you know, I then allow them to join our affiliate program, and I'm more than happy to have them on our affiliate program. But if they're getting freebies for a review, then I, I want a couple of, of free links, and I, I help them out with, with you know, hey, here's an example of what you can put there. So the other thing that's working for us pretty well is CPC uh, and you know AdWords that sort of thing. So we've got that really dialed in. What a lot of, uh, especially if you go with a an agency to manage your cost per click, your Google AdWords that sort of thing, a lot of those agencies will try to tell you that you shouldn't aim to make money with the first sale. And Eric, can we pause here for a minute? So another thing that's been working for us really well lately is our cost per click campaigns, you know, Google AdWords and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So we have that outsourced to an outside agency. And this is actually the same agency that my brother worked at in between school and then coming full time with Fringe Sport. Mm -hmm. So one of the things, especially when you outsource your cost per click to an outside agency, uh, a lot of agencies will try to tell you like, hey, cost per click is so competitive these days that you shouldn't aim to make money on the first sale and at best you should look to you know look at it as a brand building thing and look for the lifetime value of a customer or something like that but one of the things that we've really dialed in on is we've said hey we're a bootstrap company you know we do have an idea of what the lifetime value of a customer is for us but we need to be making money on that first sale 
And so we've been going down a road of optimizing to make sure that we are always making money on that first sale mm-hmm. from our CPC campaigns. And that's been, we had a few rough spots last year on that, but lately they've been just knocking it out of the park and doing really well with that. And they're able to grow their budget even while keeping our uh, ROAS return on ad spend mm-hmm. in, in check or, or where it needs to be. So that's been something that's been successful for us. Mm-hmm. The other thing, we do get a fair bit of you know, direct traffic, you know, fringesport.com, and I think that that is a response to just kind of general brand building. You know, Instagram, people who see us around in the CrossFit community and just remember us, you know, previous customers and that sort of thing. So that's been, been working well. Uh, shopping engines are good for us as well. And then we've been working a little bit more on our affiliate traffic, but we still have a, a ways to go there. Cool. And so your 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 affiliate program, I mean, that's a whole different beast in itself. I mean, who who is managing that? So we're actually managing that extremely poorly in house right now. So <laughs> we're working on on getting that a lot better. I think what we need to do is we need to just bite the bullet and and go to Commission Junction and get on their program. Huh. I might have someone for you. Oh, we'll talk please. after this, though. <laughs> I would love, love to hear it. All right. So, oh, and one other thing that I wanted to mention, even though we are you know, through and through an e-commerce company, we are going down kind of the bricks and clicks route, which if you kind of follow Warby Parker and Bonobos, mm-hmm. they're doing a little, and I think even, well, let's just say Warby and Bonobos for now. So <clears throat> fundamentally, we are... We're retailers, we're merchants, we're, we're, we're selling things and getting things into our customers' hands. So we're not going, I mean, we're more or less platform agnostic as far as how we get our product into our customers' hands. And one of the things that we exper- experimented with quite a bit last year was opening sales offices. And last year we opened a sales office in Dallas and another one in San Antonio. And it's actually been a very successful program for us. And so this year we've opened one in Houston and once we get those really cracking and, and running well, we're going to expand that even larger. Because at the end of the day, we're sh- with us, we're shipping weights. We're literally shipping weights across the country. So anything that we can do to get those weights kind of in mass closer to our customers is really, it's just one of those win-win-win things all around. Because our customers win because they actually pay a lower price because they don't have to pay so much in shipping as a component of that cost. We win because it's a profitable sale for us. And then our sales offices win because we're employing more people and you know giving them jobs and, and paying some money to them as well. Quick thing, uh, can you still see me right now? I can. Okay, there's something weird going on, but I think we're still good. <laughs> cool. So, yeah, I mean, obviously that that sounds like a whole game in itself. So, I mean, how does someone go about learning? You know, holy holy crap! You know, to reduce costs, you know, we need to open these warehouses like X, Y, and Z. <laughs> like, how do I learn this process? You know, is there any any book that you read? Any like I, I don't know, is there's blog or whatever? So, unfortunately, I learned it in the worst and best way possible, which is to say trial by error and just going out and doing it. And so, what I did with my previous employer was I actually. Uh, implemented a logistics strategy. They they were in Austin, Texas as well. They were shipping appliances, which are again just heavy, pro- heavy, bulky products that are expensive to ship. Uh, expensive by you know the, the cost of shipping was a significant portion of the potential whole cost of of the product. Mm. So what we did there is we actually opened up a warehouse in Reno and another one in Gaffney, South Carolina, 
And in a matter of, you know, just kind of one stroke of opening, or two strokes, let's say, of opening those two warehouses, we cut our shipping costs by about 25% and our time in transit by about 40%. So we were actually able to hit uh, hit 90% of the population in the U.S. within three days while using UPS or FedEx ground. And so that was something that I just learned by doing. And for the same, uh, in the same fashion with these sales offices, it's something that we learn by doing. And to be honest, I, I think my business partner, and who's also my brother, I think I mentioned before, uh, a lot of credit here because he learned by doing uh, in this method as well. So basically, we knew that, or we thought, <laughs> if we could get the product into these sales offices and closer to our customers, that we'd be able to, you know, service our customers better and that the program would work. And so we happened to find a, we'd been talking about this for a long time. And and one of the things, and I kind of mentioned a little bit earlier, you know, you know, just start your business, you know, was one of the, my lessons that I learned. One of the other lessons that I've learned over the years and, and is, is fairly acute with me right now is that there are a lot of people who do like to talk about things, but don't like to do things. Mm-hmm. And so we went down a number of blind alleys with people who, you know, we said, hey, we want to do this. We want to have you be our, our uh, salesman and we want to pay you to, you know, open up a sales office basically in Dallas or something like that. And a lot of people were like, oh, yeah, that sounds awesome. And, you know, we, we do a few financial projections and the projections show, well, hey, you know, just for doing this, you could actually make a, a lot of money. Uh, with fairly low risk and they're like yeah sounds great and then when the rubber comes time to hit the road it's like you know they're like oh this you know i've got this going on that going on whatever just tons of excuses Mm -hmm. and it's like okay cool but what we finally did where we finally landed is we found that there were some of our existing customers who really loved us like some of our best customers and they wanted to help us do this and so we were like seriously our customers will do this and we reached out on a kind of one-to-one basis to a few very good customers that we had, you know, pre-existing relationships with and said, hey, this is what we want to do. The benefit to you is that, you know, you're going to get paid. The benefit to our customers is that the product is going to be less expensive. And then, you know, we'll just kind of roll down the road with that. And we made a lot of mistakes, <laughs> of course. Mm-hmm. But thankfully, we had picked partners who were good cultural fits from the get-go, which kind of part of our culture is, is <clears throat> excuse me, we're going to make mistakes, but we're going to fix them quickly. And and when we make mistakes, they're going to come from a, not like a, a place of, of either stupidity or, or, you know, lack of attention to detail, but they're going to come from, you know, maybe ignorance or, or overreaching, but again, we'll, we'll fix it quickly. And we had partners who had, you know, a similar ethos. And so when we made some mistakes, they were willing to roll with the punches. And when they made mistakes, you know, vice versa. And from that, we just kind of tested out different methods. And whenever we found methods that worked, it was like, boom, it, it gets written up and it's part of the standard operating procedure. And then, you know, and, and then we just kind of grew from there. <laughs> Got it. Wow. Okay, cool. Trial by error. That's, that's the bottom line. Uh, there you go. All right. So final few questions from, from my end right here. I mean, you know, what's what's one book that you'd recommend to entrepreneurs? <laughs> so I read the four hour work week when I was so my dad lives in Kuwait. Uh, I was visiting him, I was unsatisfied with my job and and you know, 
I'd, I'd had these three, two or three different kind of startups that I never really fed and, and, you know, they didn't really ever get off the ground, mm-hmm. but I, and people have been telling me to read the four hour work week. And so I read it when I was literally in the back, like the very, like the boot of an SUV, there wasn't even a seat back there. And we were like bouncing around the desert, like seeing camels and I read the four hour work week in, in that situation. And I don't know if it was like dehydration or what, but that was like the, like, you know, light bulb, like, aha, you know, <laughs> moment that, that really led to me saying, you know, for whatever reason, that book just kind of jived with my brain and was like, you need to really do something or you need to shut up, you know, stop talking about the business that you want to start and you need to do this. Um, you know, one thing I will mention, because since then I've bought probably 20 to 25 copies of the four hour work week and given them to people who I thought you know, were in similar places to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I always tell them, I'm like, look, this book is 50% bullshit and 50% solid gold. Mm-hmm. And so you just need to figure out what's, what's the solid gold part. And then, you know, forget about the bullshit part. Mm-hmm. So that, that would be, you know, the number one book. But then I've got a ton of others. So, <laughs> got it. okay, no, that's a, that's a good book. I think it's definitely a, a good starting point, for, especially for people that are um, just beginning. Um, so, in terms of uh, productivity hack, what's one product, productivity hack that you can share with the audience? So, one of the things I've been doing lately as a productivity hack is I've been doing. Uh, I think you call them pomodoros. Have you heard of that? Pomodoro technique. Yeah, the Pomodoro technique. So I, and I wish I had it right here, but I actually have it like all the way across the room. I have a little tomato timer. It's just a cheesy little tomato timer. You actually have the Pomodoro. Nice. (laughs) All right, I'm going to go run and get it. I'll be right back. (laughs) And yeah, this is great pod, you know, me running away from the the interview. But anyways, (laughs) so... So I've got this cheesy little tomato timer that cost me like $5 or something like that on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you set it, you just wind it up, you set it for 25 minutes, and then while it's on 25 minutes, you work on whatever task you had decided that you were going to work on. Mm-hmm. And just work straight through, don't let anything distract you, but it's just counting down. And then whenever it counts down and rings, okay, now I have to kill it. Whenever it counts down and rings, you then get like a five-minute break. So if you want to surf Reddit, you want to surf Facebook, something like that, you want to you know, hit the head, you know, do that on your five-minute break, mm-hmm. and then set it again for 25 minutes. And whenever you've done four cycles of that, which is you know, two hours, then you actually get a little bit of a longer break. Mm-hmm. But it's been – so it's definitely a productivity hack, and it's like, oh, do you really need the, the little timer? Do you really need this or that? But for me, it's just helped me to be a lot more productive. And then the other thing is, especially when I'm in the office, uh, I've talked to my employees and I've said, look, if the tomato is ticking, don't bother me unless it's an emergency. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not I'm trying not trying to be an a-hole, but I'm just like, I'm trying to get stuff done. And if, and if this thing is ticking, you know, you have at maximum 25 minutes to wait and then you can talk to me about whatever. Mm-hmm. So that's what I've been doing lately. <laughs> nice. That's solid. No, I, I like how you adhere to it like really, really strictly because um, we all lose discipline with these things sometimes. So yeah. that's cool. Um, all right. So, yeah, I think. Uh, in terms of, you know, I think we've, we've kind of hit on this a little bit, but, you know, let's, let's just hit on it one more time. You know, what's one actionable thing listeners can do today to kind of help them grow exponentially? Awesome. So this is something that I'm really, really big on. You talked about EO before. Mm-hmm. I would say get in a mastermind group. 
whether that mastermind group is you know facilitated by something like Entrepreneurs Organization EO or it's just you getting some of your friends together. So what a mastermind group is, if, if somebody doesn't know, is it's basically an accountability group and, and also something of a peer group to help you out with various different you know problems or whatever in your business. So what I would say is, and just search the internet, you can find something. Uh, personally, in addition to EO, I'm a member of the Dynamite Circle, which I'm a big fan of, and there are a ton of mastermind groups that are facilitated by the Dynamite Circle. And but, anyways, get in a mastermind group and start. Uh, you know, make a commitment to being in a mastermind on a weekly or monthly basis because you're going to be. If you choose your mastermind well, you're going to be surrounded, hopefully, by people who are as successful or more successful than you are and are interested in similar things to what you're interested in. And it can hold, it can help you to hold yourself accountable. Mm -hmm. And then you can also find help with various different, you know, problems or things you need help with in your business. So that's a a huge thing that you can do to grow in a personal or business level. Um, One other thing to mention that, that goes along with the mastermind group uh, somebody said, I don't know who it was, said that you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Mm-hmm. And I'm a huge believer in that. So whenever I have started surrounding myself with people who are better than I am in, in certain different you know, aspects of their life, I have become better in that aspect of my life. So just as a, a really stupid example, or maybe a stupid but silly example, when I wanted to run marathons and I was slow, I started hanging out with fast runners and I I got faster because, you know, I, I mean, I was trying to keep up with those guys. Um, when I wanted to start a business, like when I had those two to three failed businesses, I was hanging out with other people who wanted to start businesses. But when I when I actually started Fringe Sport, I started hanging out with entrepreneurs, like people who had started businesses and were running businesses. And so that kind of forced me to up my game. Mm-hmm. So, you know, look at who you're hanging out with and, you know, be politely, fairly ruthless about who you're spending time with. So I like it. No, I, I totally agree with that quote. And um, yeah, I mean, mastermind stuff. I mean, you have EO. Um, there's also another one called Young Entrepreneurs Council. I recommend people looking into that. And you can always just look around and try to, you know, see like minded people and see if you guys are interested in just having a weekly Skype or something like that. So I'm a big fan of that. Um, Absolutely. One thing, just just don't do it with, especially if you're a starting entrepreneur, mm-hmm. don't do it with people who are also starting entrepreneurs. Yeah. Try to get in with people who are like more successful than you are. And they might be like wildly more successful, but they're going to make you up your game if you get in with people who are, are, are kind of like further down the path than you are. And so that's what I would try to find. But you have to bring value to a mastermind as well. You can't just be like the guy who doesn't bring anything and just sucks out of the group. You have to bring something to the table. Yeah, those are bad. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, Yeah, good insights. Um, You know, final thing I want to, you know, I I know you mentioned something about, uh, you know, your your podcast. So why don't we talk a little bit about, um, you know, what you have planned? Yeah, definitely. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to mention that. So as I mentioned before, you know, fringesport.com is my main business. If you are into CrossFit, you like strength and conditioning equipment, check us out. Uh, but I did recently launch a podcast with Peter Shankman, who is the founder of Haro. And I actually, I met him through the Dynamite Circle, which is another entrepreneurship group that I'm in. And he and I recently launched The Mistake Podcast, which you can find on iTunes 
or just at themistakepodcast.com. What we do is weekly we talk with CEOs and other interesting people who have had success and we ask them three questions. What was your biggest business mistake? How did you recover from it? And what did you learn from it? So it's fairly short and sweet, but we're just asking successful people what they screwed up, which is pretty interesting to me. And I hope it'll be interesting to everybody else. And then one other thing, I have a blog at productsimple.net where I talk about sourcing physical products mainly from China. So check that out if you're interested in that. Oh, I like it. I like both of those actually. Um, yeah, so I think I think oh, yeah. one, of the, one of the big things is you know actually giving back, right? It's not just for entrepreneurs. It's not just about taking all the time. Yeah. Everyone likes to make money and all that, but it's really about paying it forward and giving back. So I like what you're doing, especially with the blog and then the podcast as well. I think adds a ton of value to people, and you just kind of lay it out there, you know. Um, so yeah, great, um, Peter. I mean, it's been it's been great having you on the show. You know, we hope to have you on you know sometime soon. Love to, and Eric, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks, man. All right, take care.